Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, beginning at verse 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asked him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except one, God. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these since I was a child, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the ruler heard these words, he became very sad, because he was very rich. When Jesus saw that the man became very sad, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, Then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible for people is possible for God. This is the word of the Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who makes the impossible possible. You commonly see them in locker rooms and classrooms. You may see them shared on social media, or you might even have one tacked up on a bulletin board at your office. They are often set to dramatic backdrops of mountains or rivers or oceans. And they come printed with words that sound something along these lines. If you just believe in yourself, there's nothing you can't achieve. If we just work together, there's nothing we can't accomplish. If you just work hard enough, you can get whatever it is you're aiming for. Those are called motivational posters, and you may have seen them around. Well, I question the value of motivational posters. If you need a, a picture of a mountain with some words printed on it to make you do your job or to motivate you to accomplish something in life, chances are you're not going to be motivated even after looking at that picture. But I think even more importantly, those, those posters illustrate the arrogant attitude that lives inside every human heart. The what we call the opinion of the law that says there's nothing that we humans can't achieve if we just put our minds to it, if we just work hard enough, if we just spend enough money on it. The irony is that even though we harbor that arrogant attitude in our hearts, ever since the beginning of time, mankind has failed to achieve the, the one thing that we are most afraid of. The one thing that is guaranteed to come into each of our lives, and that's death. Even though from the beginning of time, mankind has sought to achieve it and worked hard at it and spent massive fortunes on achieving it, it hasn't worked. Adam and Eve had it. They had immortality, but then they lost it, and, and God had to force them out of the Garden of Eden so that they wouldn't eat from the Tree of Life and achieve a cursed version of immortality. Right around 200 BC, the first self-appointed emperor of China named Qin Shi Huang 
was obsessed with finding the key, the secret to immortality. And so he tried a variety of magical potions or elixirs to achieve immortality. Sadly, he settled on an elixir called mercury, which not only didn't grant him immortality, but ended up shortening his life considerably. About a thousand years later, there were some Chinese chemists who were also searching for this elixir of immortality, and they ended up creating something that would go on to actually prematurely end the lives of hundreds of millions of people because they had invented gunpowder. More recently, maybe you've heard in the news that people have taken to having their bodies cryogenically frozen in the hope that in the future, technology and medicine will advance to the point where their, their popsicle stick bodies can be restored to life. But it's kind of a sad tragedy, isn't it, that even though each of us thinks there's nothing we cannot do if we just have enough time and energy and money to do it, we have failed to accomplish, to conquer the only thing that is certain in life apart from taxes, and that is death. Well, make no mistake, our lesson this morning is all about life and death. A certain ruler came to Jesus asking him, searching for the secret to immortality. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, this man was probably a leader in one of the area synagogues. He probably was also a Pharisee. He treasured the two things that Pharisees held highest in highest esteem. That is, obedience to the law and riches. Those were the two things that the Pharisees clung to in this world. And so Jesus plays along with this rich young ruler. He said, what must I do? And Jesus kind of ironically responds, well, why are you coming to me to ask me? You know what the law says. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony on your father and mother. Now, according to rabbinical law, that is not God's law, but according to the rabbis, a boy was not obligated to keep the law, the Torah, until he turned 13. And so that's a frame of reference that he uses when he says, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Now, there's no reason for us to believe he wasn't sincere about this, that he was lying about it because the Pharisees focused only on the external obedience to the law. He was probably absolutely sincere in thinking that he had obeyed these commands. But that begs a question, doesn't it? It begs the question, why did he come to Jesus then? Why, if, if he was so certain that he had kept the commandments, why did he need Jesus at all? Didn't he know that Deuteronomy 18 says, the Lord makes this promise in Deuteronomy where he says, keep my regulations and ordinances. Anyone who does them will have life through them. The law does promise life if you can do them, if you can obey them. So why did this young man come to Jesus? Well, probably for the same reason that when anyone is facing death, they tend to want some spiritual guidance. Probably the same reason that after 9-11, churches were packed because people were uncertain and they were fearful of death. No matter how obedient they had been, there was something nagging their conscience. They, they think, there must be something more that I need 
to guarantee me eternal life. And that's probably what was on the mind of this certain ruler. He needed something more. And so Jesus agrees with him and says, yes, there is something more you need. One thing you lack, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now that's kind of an interesting answer, isn't it? I think if a Lutheran pastor today had received that question, we would probably say one thing you lack, and that is faith in Jesus. But that's not what Jesus says. One thing you lack, sell everything and give it away to the poor. Now, that doesn't seem like the nicest answer Jesus could have possibly given. That's not a very politically correct or emotionally responsive answer, is it? It's kind of mean, actually. Clearly, this man loved his possessions, and Jesus says, you must give up that which is most precious to you in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. But far from being mean, it was the most loving thing Jesus possibly could have said. In fact, the parallel account in Mark says that Jesus looked at this young man and loved him. And he loved him so much that he had to expose the idol that had taken over this man's heart. He pulled back the, the bow and arrow of the law and aimed it right at this man's Achilles heel, which was his riches. And Jesus' arrow hit right on target. This man walked away sad because he was very wealthy. This man realized for perhaps the first time in his life that while he may have thought that he had obeyed all of the commandments, in fact, he had made a habit, a religion really, of breaking the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods. In this man's mind, his wealth had become his god. And for the first time, he realized that he truly hadn't earned his way into eternal life. Now, we might think, good thing I'm not rich then. Good thing, good thing that I have, my problem is that I have too little of the green stuff and not too much of it. Good thing that I, I don't have near enough in the bank for it to become my God and an idol in my heart. But the point is that this is not really about wealth. You know, most people out there in the world who have a vague understanding of Scripture, of Christianity, think it is about wealth and that wealth is one of the evilest things in the world. But the truth is that wealth is, is neutral. Wealth is neither good nor bad. The Bible never says that having wealth is sinful. It does say, Paul says in 1 Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, but it doesn't say that money itself is evil. And so we can tell ourselves that money isn't our idol, that we don't spend all day thinking about it, that we don't spend most of our waking minutes trying to gather more of it, that we don't look at our nest egg or our investments as something that will secure our future. Maybe you don't. I can't look into your heart like Jesus could. Maybe wealth isn't the, the thing that Jesus would take aim at in your life. But what is it then? What is the thing that you cherish most in this life? What is the thing of this world that if asked to give it up, you, the, the, somebody would have to pry it out of your cold, dead hands? If Jesus was looking at you, right into your eyes, seen right into your soul, what would he say that you lack? What would he ask for you to give up to demonstrate 
that you do not have any other gods, that you rely completely on God for everything you need in this life and the next, what would he ask you to give up? Would it be giving up all those hours in front of the TV watching football or movies or Netflix because it's distracting you from from what really matters, which is the Word of God, and it's filling your mind with all sorts of sinful, worldly poisons? Would he ask you to give up a hobby that prevents you from spending more time in the Word of God and in prayer? Would he ask you to give up your home, that home that you worked so long for, that home that you spent so much time working on, making your own? Would he ask you to give up your car or your truck that you maybe love. We ask you to give up your job. We ask you to give up your health. We ask you to give up your spouse or your children. You know, the Lord's done that before. He asked Abraham to give up his one and only son. Would he ask you to give up your life for his name, for his sake? Would you give it up? You know, I, I think as relatively middle class people, we might say, well, I'm not rich, so I'm nothing like this guy, but we're more like him than we think, than we'd probably care to admit, right? If Jesus pulled back the bow and arrow of the law and aimed at our hearts, and as only he can, because only he can see what's on the throne in there, I don't think any of us would walk away any happier than that ruler did. Jesus summarizes it this way. How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus understood perfectly what is so hard for us to remember. As sinners who are hardwired to think that we are able to please God, his point is that it is impossible for anyone, whether you're rich or poor, male or female, black or white, young or old, it is impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of God to inherit eternal life on their own. He doesn't just say it's as impossible as it is to put a huge camel through the tiny eye of a needle. He says it's even more impossible for a sinner to enter eternal life than it is to cram a camel through the eye of a needle. And why is that? Well, for the same reason that this man walked away sad. Because he finally understood just how impossible the demands of the law are. He finally understood, and I hope we do too today, that that when God tells us to obey Him, He doesn't ask us to do our best. He's not setting a motivational poster that says, if you just try your best, that's good enough. No, he says, be perfect. He doesn't man to be, demand to be in the top ten in our lives on our priority list. He demands to be number one. Now, if someone were to take an honest look at your calendar and your budget, what place would the Lord have in it? He doesn't just demand that we love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Some of the time, when it's convenient, when it's easy, when we're, when we're surrounded by fellow Christians and we can sing our hearts out. He demands that we love Him with all our heart and soul and strength and mind when we're out there, when it's hard, when people will hate you and make fun of you and persecute you for confessing the name of Christ. Knowing that, how easy does it seem to earn eternal life by what we do, by our obedience? Instead, doesn't that make us 
react like the disciples? With fear and trembling? If, if we think like those disciples, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. They look at this, this young ruler and, and he's, he's one of the good people in society. He brings his offerings. He goes to church. He doesn't commit adultery. He doesn't steal. He doesn't murder. He's a good one. And it seems that the Lord has blessed him with riches as a result of that obedience. And the disciples are thinking, if this guy can't be saved, then who can? And that question kind of brings us full circle, doesn't it? Back to the ruler's original question. What must I do to inherit inherit eternal life? Now, there is no more important question that a person can ask in this life, but the phrasing on this question is all wrong, isn't it? Do you sense the contradiction here? What do you do to inherit something? Nothing. You can't do anything to inherit something. Inheritance is simply some, what someone has chosen to freely give you. But the ruler didn't realize this. He thought it was something he had to work for. He was so bound up in, in that thinking that we humans have, that arrogance that we have, that we can somehow, if we try hard enough, please God and earn our way into heaven. That's hardwired into each and every one of us, but the young man walked away sad because he finally realized that he couldn't do it. Even though the answer, the, the elixir, the, the solution, the, the ticket to eternal life was standing right in front of him, he was blinded by his own work righteousness. His own arrogance blinded him to his Savior. But the Lord, even though he knew that his creation, the crown of his creation, even though mankind would fall from him and fall into sin and deserve eternal punishment in hell, the Lord wouldn't stand for it. And that's what he means when he, he, he proclaims the amazing gospel What is impossible with people is possible with God. See, right after Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord planted the seed of immortality. The the very beginnings, the first ingredient of eternal life, the elixir of eternal life, He planted there in the Garden of Eden when He turned to the serpent and said, I will put enmity between you and a woman and between your offspring and hers and He will crush your head and you will strike His heel. And, and that little seed was planted, that little seed that would provide eternal salvation for every sinner in the world. It was planted and then the Lord protected it. He guarded it in the nation of Israel for thousands of years until finally the time was right for Him to make good on that promise. When the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Jesus was the one who threaded the camel through the eye of the needle. Jesus was the one who did the impossible. He came down from heaven as the Son of God and became a man in Bethlehem. Baby Jesus grew up and He suffered and He was persecuted and He was troubled just as we are, yet He never sinned. He never let any of the things of this world get in the way of His Father. He never let the worries or the concerns or cares of this life prevent him from carrying out his mission of redemption. He never loved the things of the world. You want to know what it looks like to, to, to not love the world? Jesus gave it all up. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords, as Moses said, and he gave it all up 
to be hung on a cross by His own creatures. He died in the sun there on that cross without even a thread of clothing that He could call His own. That's what it means to not love the world, and He did that for us. He did that to pay for our sins. So I think it's, it's kind of interesting. You could think of Jesus doing the impossible three different ways or three different times. He, he not only lived a perfect life of not loving the world and keeping God as number one, but then His precious blood paid the price for all of our idolatrous greed, our clinging to this world more than we should. And then three days later, He rose to life to kick open the grave and to open eternal life, the kingdom of God to all who believe in Him. Jesus made the impossible possible. He threaded that camel through the eye of the needle. He made eternal salvation and eternal life possible for all people. I don't know if you find motivational posters motivating or not. I mean, it is impressive what we've been able to accomplish as a race, isn't it? We've been able to send people to the moon, and we've just recently rocket into an asteroid to send it off course. We've cured many diseases and we've built huge monuments to ourselves, but mankind has utterly struck out at the one thing that is most important, the one thing that is eventually coming for us all. Mankind has been an utter failure when it comes to defeating death. That's why Jesus came. He came to provide the elixir of immortality. And he pours it out for you through his word, through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through the absolution. He gives you the thing you could never achieve on your own. He gives you the gift of eternal life. One more time, let's ask the question, the most important question that can be asked. What must you do to inherit eternal life? Nothing. Just receive it from God by His grace through Jesus, through faith in Jesus for free. Amen.